Warning. This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for strong language. Nil Desperandum 25. Preacher Porter's Cure by J. Michael Schell. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. This is Jim Phillips, editor and publisher of Nil Desperandum. I wanted to take a moment before we get started and talk to you about a few things. Our longtime listeners are going to recognize a format change. Now, don't worry. Our focus has and always will be on the fiction. But starting today, starting with number 25, we're going to be going to more of an audio magazine format. The reason for this is that Nil Desperandum, starting this week, will be featured on the No Agenda stream, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. So to all of you listening on No Agenda, thank you and welcome. If you want to jump over and listen to Nil Desperandum on the No Agenda stream, please go ahead and do so. To our No Agenda listeners, I want to let you know that Nil Desperandum is also available as an MP3 podcast download. You can find it at our website, ndstories.com. There you'll also find all our previous stories, which you are welcome to download, listen to, and enjoy. If you have any questions or comments, you can find us at that website. Again, that's ndstories.com. Please visit, comment on the stories, or email editor at ndstories.com. Our main fiction will be coming up a little later, but to start off, we have Adam Gauntlet who once again opens his bookshelf for us. Hello, and welcome to the bookshelf. Uh, this time it's Zombies, courtesy of Robert Kirkman and his series The Walking Dead. Just so we're on the same page, I'm only going to be talking about the trade paperbacks, and as of this shelf, I've read as far as volume 14, No Way Out. At six com- comics per volume, that's about six years' worth of product, and Any project with that long a gestation is going to change over time, not just in terms of plot, but also art style and writer's voice. I'm not going to pretend I'm qualified to talk about the art style, so you're going to have to settle for the rest of it. Incidentally, while I do try and avoid spoilers with these shelves, that may not be possible here. Close your ears if you feel the need. Kirkman is a superhero's guy at heart. Uh, What you hold in your hands is the most serious piece of work I've done so far in my career, he admits in the introduction to Volume 1. I'm the guy that created Battle Pope. I hope you guys realize what a stretch this is for me. Battle Pope, the hypermuscular womanizing last pope before the apocalypse, was one of three projects Kirkman published before Walking Dead, the other two being Tech Jacket, Alien Technology Gives Teenagers Superpowers, and Invincible, teenaged son of superhero, strikes out on his own. Uh, Since Walking Dead, he's written a string of superhero projects for Marvel, among them the flagship title books like Captain America, and he's named his firstborn child Peter Parker. I think it's fair to say Kirkman has found his niche in life and is enjoying it immensely. I can't say as I blame him. Uh, Walking Dead is the story of Rick Grimes, a cop, probably a state trooper, but that isn't spelled out, caught up in a world-shattering disaster when zombies rise. The plot begins with Rick in a coma, shot during a convict's escape attempt. He luckily remains out of it when the dead start walking. When he comes to a few weeks later, the zombie apocalypse is well underway, and he has to deal with the result as best he can. 
According to Kirkman's Volume 1 intro, Rick's dealing with it is how he wants the series to stay. The Walking Dead is to stay with the character, in this case Rick Grimes, for as long as humanly possible. I want The Walking Dead to be a chronicle of years of Rick's life. We will never wonder what happens to Rick next. We will see it. The Walking Dead will be the zombie movie that never ends. And that works remarkably well. Identifying a strong main protagonist, keeping focused on him, could have been a huge mistake. After all, half the point of zombie flicks is that everyone dies. But the reader doesn't know when they die. Uh, Tropes aside, that is. Identifying one person as the man who cannot die, unless presumably the series ends, takes some of the suspense off the table. The series has already seen Rick lose a hand, then a chunk of his arm, and I can't help but think that more bits are going to get sliced away in an extended quest to inject artificial suspense into Rick's corpus. If he can't die, then it's pointless threatening him with death. So, instead the Grim Reaper targets Rick's extended family. He catches up with his wife and son early on, and with them, a small band of fellow survivors, each of them clearly marked as potential zombie yum-yum from the get-go. Now, this was the make-or-break for Kirkman if he couldn't write characters that the reader would grow to care about, and their eventual demise wouldn't matter, and the whole thing would collapse. Thankfully, Kirkman captures his characters' individual voices quickly, giving the reader people to care about, and making a zombie threat seem that much more interesting. The earlier volumes in this series are probably the weakest. The dialogue doesn't quite work, the interplay between characters is occasionally stilted, and the plot's a bit weak. Uh, This is also when the zombies are at the most active, so whenever things get a bit slow, enter the shambling cannibals. As Kirkman gets into his stride, he needs the zombies less and less, with the result that they don't appear on stage as often, allowing Kirkman to concentrate on his characters and their predicament. It's all very pulp, but, you know, pulp is fun. Now, pros and cons. Uh, Pro 1. Rick's band of survivors are appropriately humanised and interesting enough to keep the series going. Though Rick is the main character, in a sense this is their story. By identifying him as the one one whom around the plot revolves, Kirkman created a character that cannot change easily. The support characters, on the other hand, can, and it's their plot points and dramas that actually make the story interesting. Pro 2. The action is fast-paced and visually entertaining. Kirkman's experience with the hero genre shows here. Particularly in American superhero titles, bone-crunching action is usually the focal point, and Kirkman doesn't disappoint. Pro 3. Their dilemmas are broadly believable, inasmuch as the quest for food and ammunition takes up a lot of their time. Disease hasn't been as much of a factor. I was expecting the harsh winter to carry a couple of characters off, particularly the young and the old, but no one even caught the sniffles. Or lice. Nor are there rats, and I'd have thought, particularly in the early months, the world would be a rat paradise. In fact, I'm going to turn this into a bit of a con, in that while the dilemmas are broadly believable, they lack detail, and a lot of it seems simplified. Con 1. As Rick becomes more of a typical badass survivor type, I find I like him less. Uh, Particularly given that several of the support characters are as interesting as he, it seems a shame that everything has to be about him all of the time. I had a similar issue with the television series, oddly enough. It was well put together, but every so often Rick would give a hero's speech, and while that works in comic form, kinda, 
On the screen, it made him sound like Ned Flanders' zombie killer. Con 2. Pulp's fun, but the action occasionally veers into Tales from the Crypt territory, which is less entertaining. There's a particular sequence involving cannibals and tainted meat that typifies a tendency. I suppose that sort of thing is inevitable given the subject matter, but I'm hoping it won't become the be-all and end-all. If you like zombies and action and survival stories, this is worth a go. However, if you're not a comics fan, this won't win you over. I suspect it will keep on going for a while yet. If the television series really takes off, then the comics will probably keep going for ages. So far, two series are adept, and the cast has been signed up for multiple seasons, according to the blurb. I'm not quite sure how that works, since presumably some of them get eaten. But I suppose we can count on at least two more years, and probably more than that. I confidently expect Rick to be legless and armless by then, beating zombies to death with his beard. That's it from me. Bye-bye. And our main fiction today, Preacher Porter's Cure by J. Michael Shell. This is J. Michael Shell's third story to appear on Nil Desperandum. The first, Nil Desperandum 4, An Occidental Book of the Dead, and the second, number 18, The Autobiography of God. Together, these three stories form something of a trilogy. But if you haven't listened to the previous two, don't worry about it. It's not a trilogy in plot, but rather a trilogy in style, in thought, in life, perhaps. Anyway, on with the story. Preacher Porter's Cure by J. Michael Shell. White, moonlit coral gravel made the night seem unusually bright, lit up. The sharp little chunks of ancient reef felt good under my calloused feet. The air had just enough cool breeze in it to remind me I was naked. That domino of memory tilted and fell to where the next domino, what was I doing out there naked, should have been. It fell on empty space. I had no idea why I was staring into the palm shadows in the middle of the night. I had gone to bed. Must have fallen asleep. I'd never somnambulated in my life. Yet here I was. I felt like I was dreaming. My head was foggy. Still, the night being so cool and nice, I decided to walk out into the palms. Since it was summer, no one was around to see me strolling about en atral. The place was deserted. Six months from now I'd cause quite a stir if I let it all hang out like this. But now everyone was gone back up north. All their winter mobile homes were locked up and battened down. Only my little travel trailer was occupied, and that by me alone. With each step I took into the shadows, the dreamlike quality of my perception increased. My skin seemed luminous to me. My body was very relaxed, and a rush of almost sexual warmth overcame me at one point. Then I saw someone standing about ten yards away. As I noticed him, he started walking toward me. He, too, seemed to be ever so slightly shining. As he got closer, I was astounded at how much he looked like Albert Einstein. And now that I think about it, that's who it must have been. In a decidedly German accent, he said to me, I have some information for you. I was feeling so dreamy, like I was floating, and his accent was so thick that at first I didn't understand what he'd said. He took another step toward me, and I noticed it wasn't Albert Einstein, 
but Ed Sullivan, hugging himself and saying to me, I got some really big news. Another step, and it was Oprah Winfrey asking, Are unseen entities whispering not-so-sweet nothings into our ears? The answer to that and more on the next Oprah. Then the whole strange vision disappeared along with the fog in my brain. I was standing alone in a copse of palms, the gentle island breeze caressing me with silk hands. And I was sober. Had been for many months. But if I hadn't denuded the trailer of all alcoholic content when I stopped, I just might have broken my own taboo and imbibed right then and there. I was shaken. Einstein, Sullivan, and Oprah. Uh-oh. I dragged my moonlit butt inside and dropped back into the bed. I was going to have to sleep this off, silly me. I thought refusing myself those large quantities of alcohol could free me from such and the likes of delirium. On the next Oprah, alcohol-free DTs, the big surprise. Next morning I awoke remarkably refreshed. The sun was out and it was raining. Either God or the devil, according to who you talked to, was beating his wife. I sincerely hoped it wasn't God, since I had petitioned him regularly during my battle with booze. Initially my body had pitched quite a fit as the blood alcohol levels in it dropped. I had danced with that cold sweat turkey during the previous summer while the snowbirds were back in their northern nests. It was an older crowd that occupied the other six trailers in our little park, and they were much practiced in the art of social imbibing. Being the only youngster among them, I looked younger than my thirty-nine years. They delighted in telling me their life stories every evening, and supplied my obvious addiction with a never-ending flow of spirits. Insane with copious consumption, I'd pretend to listen as they filled and refilled my glass. Sometimes I'd wake up in a lawn chair in front of one or another of their domiciles, glass cradled to my breast, the sun rising and drying the fields of hay beginning to molder in my mouth. Then summer would approach and they'd begin their yearly ritual of packing up and battening down. Before they left, they would always come up with several bottles of booze each which they would leave with me. Here you go, Myron. I'm not carting this all the way back to Jersey with me. Or, hey, my, here's a bottle of Trader Vicks for you, in case you want to make some Cherry's Jubilee. Ha <laughs> ha! They had all finally left, that spring of my recovery, and I was sitting at the tiny table in my trailer, looking at a dozen bottles, all unopened, a fiery fodder for my addiction. I guess the old farts wanted to make sure I'd be primed for the resumption of their endless tales when they returned the following fall. I picked up the bottle of Trader Vic's 110-proof flaming brandy. Cherry's Jubilee my ass, I thought as I cracked the seal and took the poison off the top. Vic's high-octane sauce hit me like a bowl of flaming cherry bombs. As I drank more, the tales the old bastards had told me over and over started sliding down the wet banisters of my brain. Tales about fish caught and fish lost. Tales about butcher shops and bakeries. About wives choking on chicken bones. About goiters and gallbladders. Tales, tales, tales. Something about all this endless brain chatter, and probably the jubilee sauce coursing through my veins, caused me to snap, to lose it. I was standing, by then, with that bottle of Big Baluey in my hand when some part of me decided to swing it like a Molotov billy club right through the crowd of cork concoctions on the table. My roomy eyes were so full of rage and tears that I could barely see the incredible thrashing I was inflicting on my little home. I had tripped the wire on my booby-trapped brain. The jet engines of sanity had flamed out at unknown altitudes. Had anyone been in earshot that night, I'd have gotten a new white jacket, straight as an arrow, and a free trip I didn't want. 
Instead, I woke up the next morning to a sparkling display of broken glass awash with the watercolor mixture of my blood and spilt booze. While I was picking shards of glass out of my perpetually bare feet, I decided to quit drinking. When I finished removing the glass, I limped to the liquor store and bought a bottle of wine. I managed to stay on the wagon till I got the cork out of that bottle of Merlot. That afternoon, I met the bum. For some reason, I decided to let William Faulkner write the end of my story. Perhaps because I'm originally from the Deep South. Perhaps because I've always liked his wordy, old, soap opera-ish tomes. The nearly empty magnum of Merlot had made it clear to me I wasn't going to stop drinking without taking drastic measures. And anyway, I thought while I was breaking the hands off all the clocks in my trailer, it's a tale told by an idiot. It means nothing. When I'd finished with the clocks... I put on a pair of bibbed overalls and filled all the pockets, top and bottom, with dive weights. Probably thirty pounds in all. I didn't have a watch, so I took my now amputated alarm clock with me, and what was left of the Merlot. Big Pine Key is the most wooded of all the Florida Keys, hence its name. I limped down Avenue A, my feet tender, my hands full of clock and wine, to where it dead-ended into a little woods. On the other side of the woods was the bay. I laughed as I entered there, knowing the end of my insatiable misery was at hand. I tied the cord of the alarm clock around my neck, and it hung on my breast like a bizarre medallion, a reminder of the time I'd lost and the time I was about to stop. I could see the end of the woods and the bay sparkling through the scrub and mangroves. What do you think, Bill? I said out loud to the conspicuously absent Faulkner. Am I doing it right? Did I forget anything? From very nearby, a voice responded to my query. The timber of it was a cross between Popeye and Burgess Meredith. Nah, you got the whole thing wrong. It was a pocket watch, not an alarm clock. And you should put some shoes on. Or boots would be better. They'll hold you down when you change your mind and start trying to get those weights out of your pockets. Big, tall fish boots with lots of pairs of socks so you can't get out of them. Yeah, you're screwing it up all right. But who knows? You might get lucky. I turned toward my left, where the voice seemed to be coming from. There, sitting on a log in front of a tiny cook fire, was a grizzled old bum with white hair and a full white beard. He looked the way his voice sounded. I'd been in those woods dozens of times, and had never once seen him. He had a can of Beanie Weenies sitting in the fire, and was drinking an orange crush. "'Who are you?' I asked, beginning to get angry about his critique of my death scene. "'The bum,' he replied as if I should have known. A bum that's read Faulkner? I asked. Not a bum. The bum. And I've read everything. How do you like that? And I still say, if you're going to do Faulkner, you ought to do it right. You take liberties, damn it. Liberties. Ruining your life don't give you the right to diddle with somebody else's work. Do at least one thing right, God damn it, or don't do it at all. For some reason... Talking to this bum, little fragile match of sanity against the swirling haze in my mind. I sat down on his log and offered him the dregs of the Merlot. Ah, now there's a friendly gesture, he announced as I pointed the bottle his way, offering me some of your poison. Just a few minutes away from letting it drown you, and you want me to have a little too. Get off my log, you bone-brained idiot. 
You shit-swilling fish fodder. You piss-bloated pot of percolating poison. Go finish yourself off before you spoil my appetite. Go, 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 go. I stood and looked down at him, poking his cans of beans with a stick. If you don't drink, how come you're a bum? I asked, feeling superior and looking ridiculous. I'm the bum because that's what I am. The day I came to terms with that was the day I stopped slavering stupid sauce all over my brain. And just what the hell are you, genius, standing there with a clock around your neck and your farmer browns all stuffed full of lead? In ten minutes I'll be a live, sober bum, and you'll be breathing bay water looking stupid dead as you did alive. Don't it bother you that they might find your body looking like that? Or at least what's left after the crabs get through? I'm making a statement. You're not sane enough to make a statement. I can smell ten years of insanity coming out of your pores right now. The only statement killing yourself makes is you are too stupid to live. Do you suppose some fisherman's going to reel in your bloated dead ass and say, Oh, how Faulkner-esque? No, he's either going to puke or laugh, depending on how much of your worthless meat is still on your bones. Now either walk out into the bay or take that clock from around your neck. You give me the creeps, you creep. By the time he'd finished, I was too tired and defeated even to kill myself. I took off the handless clock and pitched it into the bay. Then I sat back down on the log. When the bum spoke again, his voice wasn't so raspy and accusing. His diction seemed also to mysteriously improve. Why do you want to kill yourself, anyway? I can't quit drinking, and I'm going insane. You are insane. And of course you can't quit drinking. Nobody can. What about you? I asked. I stopped drinking because I came to terms with my life as it is. I stopped bitching and moaning about the hand God dealt me, and instead asked him to help me play it the best I could. You really want to hear this? Because if you're going to kill yourself, it seems like a big waste of time. I really want to hear it. Look, I'm living to hear it. I threw the clock away, didn't I? My voice sounded less than sane, even to me. My eyes must have been wild as I sucked the last of the Merlot out of the bottle, staring daggers at him, daring him to say something that would save me. He did. The Bum's Story, Preacher Porter's Cure I've always been a bum, a hobo, a tramp, a free spirit, but I didn't always know I was a bum. When I was a kid, my family was well-to-do, not millionaires, mind you, but well-to-do, up and coming, and I was the son that was going to climb them the rest of the way up the ladder. Lawyer, doctor, congressman, maybe president. They had big plans for me, but I was a bum. At the school they sent me off to, I read. Read literature. Other than that, I did nothing. Sometimes I'd disappear for days into the stacks of the huge old library there. I'd bring a couple of sandwiches and a bottle of water and read for days. If I had to piss, I'd piss out a window. When I'd come out, everybody'd be nuts wondering where I'd been. They never figured it out, and I never told them. Every time I'd disappear again, they'd freak out until they finally sent me home. I went home with a tremendous knowledge of British and American literature, 
but I couldn't add two and two. My parents were devastated, and this upset me terribly. I was screwing up their plans. What was wrong with me? I decided I was going to make them happy. I'd go back to school and become a lawyer, make them proud. My old man was so happy when I told him he broke out a bottle of twenty-five-year-old scotch. I didn't like liquor back then, but I had a glass of that scotch with him. The booze made my decision seem right to me. It felt good. I could do anything. I didn't have to be the bum I was. Back to school I went, headstrong and determined. I studied stuff I hated, forced myself to swallow that gibberish like mashed beets till I was full of it. But whenever exam time rolled around, I'd manage to get drunk, despite my dislike of the stuff, and barely make it through the tests. Still, I graduated and became a lawyer. But, just like with the exam, I'd manage to get liquored up whenever I'd get a big case. I thought if I got married, that would settle me down. But the girl I married turned out to be as big a sot as me, and we got divorced just in time not to kill one another. I must have quit drinking a hundred times back then as I drank my career and life into the toilet. Now I was a bum again, but I still didn't know it. All I could think about was my ruined career, the big man I could have been in the community. The more I thought about it, the more I drank, and the more I drank, the more I tried to convince everybody, including myself, that I wasn't a bum. I drank so much I was as crazy as you are now. God, it was disgusting. So I decided to do myself in. It's the last gurgle in the throat of every liquor bottle, the sum at the end of the equation, the thought all your other crazy thoughts are thinking. I was pretty pissed at myself back then, and hadn't concocted so picturesque a death for myself as the one you had in mind. No, I'd drag my drunken ass down to the railroad tracks with a fifth of hundred-proof vodka I'd stolen from somewhere. I was going to pour that fifth into me and pass out on the tracks where the silver star coming out of town at midnight would turn me into a long red smear on the cross tries. I laughed when I saw the tracks, just like you did when you saw the bay. The tracks I was sitting on with that bottle full of my epitaph were on the outskirts of Black Bottom. That's what the whites called the town where the black folk lived. From my perch on the tracks I could see the back of an old clapboard church. It's paint peeling like dignity off a drunk. Then I noticed a little light come on in the rectory. After a few minutes, a door opened, and the old black preacher came out, slippers on his feet, dressed in black pants and a wrinkled white shirt. His clerical collar was undone, standing out from his neck like a sprung spring. He walked over and sat on the rail next to me. He had a big white mug full of coffee, which he sipped as he sat and looked at the stars. Pretty night, he said. I stood up belligerent and demanded to know what he wanted. I want to drink my coffee, he replied. Out here on the tracks, I persisted. I always drink my coffee out here on the tracks. What are you doing here? For some reason his argument made sense and I sat back down. I'm going to drink this liquor and let the Silver Star run over me, I told him matter-of-factly. Mind if I ask you to do that down the tracks a piece? It's going to leave a big stain. I like to have my coffee out here, like I said. How far? I asked him. I was stupid as you back then, remember? Oh, maybe half a mile or so, but go south. No telling how far it's liable to bloody things up. If you go south, I surely won't have to see it. I was getting up to move on down the tracks away so as not to upset the Negro preacher when he grabbed my sleeve and said, Wait, you still got plenty of time. I hear the Silver Star is running late tonight. "'and I'm curious what would make a man want to have a train run over him. 
Just professional curiosity, mind you. Maybe I can get a sermon out of it. It seemed like a reasonable request from a preacher, so I told him my story. When I finished, he just sat sipping coffee and looking at the stars. I was about to get up and start off down the tracks when he looked at me and said, Who you is don't want to die, but who you isn't is going to kill you anyway. I didn't understand him, but I knew he was telling me the truth. I didn't want to die. He continued, Your problem is simple. You is what God made you. But you thinks you're supposed to be something else. But the you God made won't let you be nothing else. You can try and try, but the real you will never live a lie. And every time you try and live the lie, you punishes yourself with that poison. Now you've done poisoned everything you is, and everything you isn't, till the whole mess of you is ready to lay down and sleep on the tracks. You crazy now. Probably best just to go ahead and drink up and let the Silver Star take you out. I could help you. But I don't know. You're pretty far gone. With that, he stood up and started to walk back to the rectory. Without turning around, he said to me as he walked away, Down the tracks, south. Gonna leave a big stain. Wait, I said, getting up and following him. How could you help me? How? I grabbed his arm and turned him to face me. Why would an old, wrinkled-up black preacher want to help a white drunk like me? Why? I demanded. The preacher held his coffee mug up to my arm and said, "'Cause you ain't so white, and I ain't so black.' I stayed with the preacher about a week. It was Sunday night when he took me in. For three days he watched over me while I got good and sick. I'd been at it a long time, and stopping damn near killed me. Twice in that three days I was so bad the old preacher had to give me a little booze or I'd have gone into DTs. But when the worst of it was over, he told me I wasn't going to ever take alcohol again because I was going to be what God wanted me to be. First thing you got to do is admit liquor's stronger than you, but not stronger than God. It's done whipped your ass, and it'll always whip it. Go ahead. Admit it. Liquor'll whip my ass, I said. You don't mean it, the preacher accused. Liquor's the horse the devil rides in on. It's mean and powerful and will dance all over you like shit in the street. Won't it? Won't it? He yelled at me. Though I was mostly over the withdrawal, my head was still pounding, and this foul-mouthed preacher wasn't helping. But still, I tried to do as he asked. I knew it was this or the tracks. Yes, yes, I yelled back at him. I drink, and it takes me over. It's all I can see or hear. It's all I love. I'm a goddamn slave to it. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, boy. But that's good. Believe it. It's a cunning old fox, and there's nothing you can do to outsmart it. How are you going to beat it, boy? How? I can't, I cried, tears streaming down my cheeks. That's right, you can't. But liquor's just a little pipsweak pony to Almighty God, and all you gotta do is ask, and he'll pluck that horse out of your life like a tick off a hound. He'll squash that blood-sucking devil between his mighty fingers and leave you free. Do you understand me, boy? Free of it? You just got to ask. I can't. I whimpered. I can't ask because I don't believe. How can I believe when my life's been such hell? Nobody asked you to believe. You think God cares if you believe in him? You think God's losing sleep wondering if old white trash like you believes? I believes. That's all you got to know. And I'm telling you to ask. You just say, Preacher Porter's God, I may not believe in you, but I'm asking anyway. And don't you dare pray to my God lessen you means it, lessen you wants to stop. 
I don't care if you believes, but you damn sure got to mean it. I did. I prayed hard to that old Negro preacher's God, and I flat out told him I didn't believe, because I had respect for the preacher, and wasn't going to lie to his God. I told him alcohol had me for a slave, and I asked him to set me free. I prayed all night till I fell asleep on the cot in that rectory. When I woke up the next morning, I didn't crave a drink. That next night, Preacher Porter and I were sitting on the tracks drinking coffee. I hadn't said a word to him about my craving being removed. After a long silence, he looked at me and said, My God likes you, boy. Too bad you don't believe in him. Good thing I do, though, don't you think? When does the Silver Star run through here, anyway? I asked, changing the subject. I haven't heard it once since I've been here. Silver Star don't come down these tracks. Never did. Ain't been a train on these tracks in twenty years. Old Preacher Porter wasn't done with me yet, though. He told me I had to ask his God to help me be what he wanted me to be. Well, what if he wants me to be a bum? I asked him. Then you gots it easy. Sober bum ought to be a piece of cake. Crotchety old nigger preacher, now there's a hard one. I laughed at that, but asked him never to call himself a nigger again in my presence. You ain't so black, I reminded him. When Preacher Porter finished his coffee that night, he stood up and stretched. Damn, but I get sore sitting on these tracks. But I thought you always drink your coffee out on these tracks. Hell no, I was lying like a rug. Then why do you keep doing it? Punishment for lying like that, I guess. Now listen, boy, there's something else you gotta do, and you ain't gonna like it. But if you don't do it, you might just fall back into your old ways. But I'm cured, preacher. I don't need to drink any more. The craving's gone, and I believe in your God now. I swear I do. He's the biggest, blackest, shiny-eyed Negro God in heaven, and I believe. I know you do, but you might forget him, and you ain't never cured till the day you die. Till then, you're just carrying the cure around with you. You think you're the first piece of trash I picked up off the tracks or out of the gutter? You think my God did any less for them others than he did for you? But unless they did what you're going to do now, they forgot. They forgot because there was things in their heads to make them forget. Things they'd done that their true selves didn't like and kept blaming them for. God, you don't care what you've done. Just ask and he'll forgive you. Hell, he'll forgive you before you even ask. But yourself ain't so forgiving. You won't never be satisfied till you've admitted the things you've done that you think are so terrible. So right now you're going to sit on them cold, hard tracks and tell me every last thing you've done that you're ashamed of. You ain't asking my forgiveness either. I care less than God about your transgressions. All I'm going to do is hear you say it. Then that son of bitch liquor won't have a claw left in you. It'll have nothing left to latch onto and accuse you of. Then you'll really be free. Again, I didn't understand him, but I knew he was telling the truth. He just stood there and never moved or said a word while I told him every vile secret in my heart. At times I whispered, and at times I cried and screamed. Preacher Porter never flinched, and when I was done, he said, Now we can quit sitting on these damn tracks. Next day was Sunday, and Preacher Porter asked me to come to his 8 a.m. service. You sure you want me to, Preacher? I asked, knowing how much I'd stand out in his congregation. Don't worry, he replied. You ain't so white. After service, Preacher Porter shook my hand on the steps of a little church. Somehow I could tell he was saying goodbye, that it was time for me to leave. 
I smiled and said with tears in my eyes, Thank you, preacher. No use thanking me. There is one more thing I need you to do. Name it, I said. When the opportunity presents itself, and it will, you do for others what I did for you, just exactly the way I did it, because that's just exactly the way somebody did it for me. You mean you were a drunk? Hell, boy, you think I was born knowing I was a crotchety old nigger preacher? And finally, I'd like to welcome to the show Deanna Nippling. Deanna is the author of Miracle Texas, which was heard back in issue number 12, as well as the novel Choose Your Doom, Zombie Apocalypse, available from Doom Press. Deanna has also published numerous other short stories, and you can find more information at her blog, deannaknippling.com. And that link will be in the show notes. Hi. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, so, Miracle Texas. I can't hardly say. I can't hardly even say the title without jumping into accent. Miracle <laughs> Texas. <laughs> you know I do too. <laughs> uh, so this story in particular, obviously, is definitely has some some echoes of uh, the uh, the very old kind of worldwide Amazon myths. How did you come to to write the story as as a as a western? Uh, I started out with it as a western and gradually realized that there were Amazons in it, and and then I went back and edited it and um, kind of brought that out a little more. So, so you started with a western and and it turned into an Amazon myth rather than thinking, oh, I, I want to write I want to write a story about Amazons, and it just happened to end up a western. Exactly. <laughs> um, is this? Are you? Do you do a lot of western, or is this? I do, but it's set more in my uh, home state, which is South Dakota, rather than Texas. It just happened to be Texas that time, I guess. Um, I do write westerns, but they're weird westerns, so. I don't know. Does that count as actually writing westerns? I haven't answered that to my own satisfaction yet. <laughs> well, I certainly suppose. I certainly suppose that works. Um, now, the Justine. She's an interesting character, and, and already, uh, the even though the story has only been out for a couple days now, I've had a, a number of people uh, mention that they they love the opening. I mean, just the opening sentence. If he'd meant to leave his wife for her, he shouldn't have shot her horse. That's that's probably one of the greatest hooks, opening hooks I've I've ever read. Well, thanks. <laughs> that, that's what I started out with when it was originally just going to be a western and not about Amazons. Now, is is Justine invented out of whole cloth, or does she? Um, is, is she you know, an, uh, an amalgam of, of you or other people that you know? Or, or where does the character of Justine come from? Um, you know, I'm not entirely sure. 
um, she started out kind of as a, uh, not as a representation of me, but uh, as, uh, you know, if I were going to see a movie about a Western woman, what would I want to see? And I just started kind of writing out a wish list and it was, ended up kind of being like Juliette Lewis in, I forget what the movie is, the, the one where she goes on a uh, murderous rampage with this other guy, and I forget what it's called. But um, she started out as kind of that character, and I guess I could look it up. Uh, it's the one with Woody Harrelson. <laughs> yes, yes, that yeah, one. I can see the movie in my head, but I can't think of it. Uh, yeah, I can't think of the name either. That's okay. Um now, as as a an Amazon myth, if you will, it certainly does not turn out well for most of them. I couldn't see any way that it could. <laughs> well, it's it, I guess that's kind of one of the interesting things that I like about this story is is you you could certainly see, or at least I, I could see reading through it, how it could fall into. You know, more of an of an action fantasy where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, all the Amazons turn up in town and and kick ass and take names and uh, you know, ride off into the sunset, having killed all the men. And that, you know, that might work once, but <laughs> <laughs> there's always another town. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that we're. I don't certainly don't think that would have been as good a story, although it might have been entertaining, but. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of devolving into more of an escapist fantasy than uh... now. The one thing that I did find interesting is why, and, and that I wanted to ask you about is, I guess, why did you kill off Giles's wife at the end? It ended up. Because it's an Amazon story, it ended up being kind of, um, well, to me anyway, a metaphor for this group of women trying to go it on their own and failing to do so. And the alter- alternative was um, kind of wife and the way that she lived and how she wasn't an Amazon and everything about her was not Amazon-like. And she still got screwed. So there really was no good way out of the situation for Justine. She couldn't settle down and be happy or even really live, and she couldn't not settle down and be happy and really live. I don't know. I just was in a mood to write something where nothing worked out well. <laughs> well, it, it now that you mention it, that kind of brings up another point. It, it certainly does not, I mean, even for Justine, as you point out, it, it does not work out well for any of the women in the story. Is there... You know, as, as as a male reader, is there some message I'm supposed to take away from oh. this? Or, uh... <laughs> and no, I mean, um, if you look at the Western genre, um, the the really great movies and fiction, um, they aren't about the happy endings because, as really, the old West died. That whole culture just died. And when you go back to like the origins of uh, the Old West tales that you could find in uh, samurai movies, and uh, like if you trace the Magnificent Seven back to the Seven Samurai, the samurai culture just died out as well. Um, 
But if you look at things like the like um, Unforgiven, again, you've got the Old West culture and you've got uh, the situation with the, the prostitutes and everything there. And that whole thing doesn't end well. And it, it just dies out. So to me, that's just um, kind of a way of me celebrating the genre, I guess. That whole, the whole culture of the Old West was about things that have passed on. And so taking a look at that and tying it back to Amazon myths. Well, the Amazons, they died out as well. So it wasn't really supposed to be a moralistic tale, but just kind of like uh, tying the Amazons back to the Old West culture and uh, something that is passed on and it is no more and it is doomed and we will love it anyway. That certainly makes sense. It's it's something I hadn't considered before, but I would certainly agree. Every, every, Decent, every even halfway decent Western movie, there's you know, the the end. Things don't work out well at the end, and and any victories that are achieved along the way, as you point out, they they really are kind of pyrrhic victories, because yep. in the end, everyone here is going to lose regardless. Yep. Excellent. Um, to switch gears for a moment, uh, you have uh, the one novel out. Yes. The Choose Your Doom Zombie Apocalypse. Yep. Um, Tell me about that. What's what's, first? What's that about? I guess. Uh, um, uh, Actually, it's. I guess it kind of ties in now that now that uh, we bring these things up in context. In that it's about people who are doomed, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, how things are not going to go well. yeah, it's uh, set in Colorado Springs, which is where I currently live now, and it's the hypothetical battle between the evolution of um, mold and human beings as carried out along the, the Broadmoor Hotel and the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo and downtown and through various restaurants and streets and places that I know, including Cheyenne Mountain, which is the hypothetical location of uh, the Stargate, which I always thought was fun. <laughs> anyway, um, it's kind of like the old Choose Your Own Adventure books where you get to pick your own paths. However, you die. You, the, the goal is simply to... Ch- to um, select your preferred method of dying, which to me, uh, to get to the end, you have to be able to save the world as you die. But you know, (laughs) often that will not be the case. (laughs) Excellent. Um, so how did, how did you, I mean, did, did, uh, doom press approach you or did you pitch, did you pitch this to them? I pitched something else to them, and they came back with me and said, Duh, so what do you think about the old choose-your-own-adventure books? And I said, well, if the parts where you die are always better, and they're like, have we got a job for you? <laughs> uh, so were the zombies your idea, or did they... Nope, they wanted they, to start off with the zombies. They, they, want, they want a zombie story. Excellent. Yep. Okay. Uh, any more of these that you're going to be working on? Um, we are planning on doing another one pretty soon. Uh, as soon as we get some technical difficulties out of the way, it's going to be about 2012. Okay. So the Mayan apocalypse. Ah, good tie-in. <laughs> yeah. Good tie-in. Yeah, we figured we should get that one done first, just in case. So I, I have to ask, as a <clears throat> as a big fan of the the old <clears throat> Choose Your Own Adventure books, and in fact, I re- recently just bought a number of the reprints for my son, and and he loves them as well. 
how do you find writing in that that second person multiple ending choose your own the choose your own adventure style you know, versus a traditional narrative um laying out the powerpoint took more time than writing the book <laughs> <laughs> oh i struggled with that um and then of course uh, there were edits to the layout before i even started writing so i had to pull everything up and do a couple of things over again oh <laughs> It was painful. I don't. I can't see it getting any easier. But it was um, one of the more fun experiences I've had plotting a book, too. I guess that's true. Because you, you, in order to really pull it together, you can't. Even if you're not the kind of writer who who outlines everything in advance, with that style, you really do need to kind of flowchart where all the possible stories are going, and then. You're just kind of filling in the words on the page based on that, right? Um, yeah. Plus, I had a couple of things, uh, four or five different events that happened in every single pathway that gets to a certain point. So there were universal events that I had to script all the way across all my branches. And then there are some branches that cross back over onto each other. And then I had to cross out the zombie path because... You can end up turning into a zombie and still being an actor in the throughout the book as you go through the book. So I, I was trying to get really clever with it, and I think we pulled it off, but it took a long time to lay out. All right. It's a lot of work. And we, um, uh, one of my compatriots has a uh, um, uh, zombie podcast that he's been working on for a while it's a, an audio drama and it's <laughs> zombies are always entertaining everyone loves zombies you know i actually met someone who doesn't like zombies and has said they're the stupidest thing ever and i i just he and i just cannot see eye to eye. <laughs> <laughs> um i have to ask also just because kind of looking through your bibliography here um, you have a uh, short story published, A Fly in Amber. Uh-huh. Now, I have to admit, I, I haven't read it, uh, but just based on the blurb on your website uh, and being a big, big uh, scotch drinker uh, who was myself incre- incredibly uh, uh, attracted to the, the story when they found that uh, cash of <gasps> uh, scotch from Shackleton, what is this story about, A Fly in Amber? You know, it's about the ironies that sometimes happen in life. <laughs> I think I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's about it's about the shackled and scotch. <laughs> Things don't go well; they're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing a, uh, a pattern here. <laughs> I swear that's not every single thing that I write, but it just does seem to be the theme today. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us today. Uh, where can people find more information about you and about your work? Um, you can find more information about me at deannaknipling.com. And I also have a small press set up now called wonderlandpress.com. Okay, great. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. And I hope uh, we will hear more from you in the future. Thanks for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, Deanna. So there we have it. 
issue number 25 in our new format. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you will continue to listen. Nil Desperandum is entirely listener-supported. We are a paying market. We do pay our authors for these stories. But we cannot continue to do so without your help. So if you have enjoyed this or any of our stories, please visit ndstories.com. Leave a comment and a donation. Every penny helps, and every penny goes to pay our authors. Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Listen to it, download it, share it, and enjoy it. Please, just don't change it or make any money off it. Thank you, and until next time, please, happy reading.